sometimes people might say or do or create something that even from the outset they might sense is not correct or wrong. And then when it comes to a bad end, as in retrospect seemed likely all along, they might say in an attempt at self-justification, well, if I hadn't done it, then someone else would have. When we hear an explanation like that, which unfortunately we not infrequently do, then what might be going on there is an attempt to deflect responsibility. However, sometimes in the same kinds of situation, another explanation is given. I create this thing because I can. In this, perhaps, there's no avoidance whatsoever of responsibility, but instead something that could maybe be labelled as perverse, an enjoyment, a relishing of that responsibility. When there's a choice between doing nothing and doing something likely to have negative consequences, sometimes, paradoxically, the negative thing can seem the lesser evil. It can appear preferable to make some kind of statement or leave some kind of mark, albeit a negative one, rather than submit to a passive silence which can feel like us vanishing from the world. It's in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis where we read the story of the Tower of Babel. All the human beings in the world at that time were one people and they all spoke a single language. And so they decided to come together and build a tower that would reach up to heaven and put them in connection with God. They were doing that because they could, but unfortunately for them, God had other ideas. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. This story seems to suggest that if human beings can do something, then 
however inadvisable, they will, if by some means it becomes possible to link earth and heaven, then somebody somewhere is bound to give it a try. What happens in the story is that God takes away this capability. We might wonder at God's motivation in this. Is God behaving like some well-to-do neighbour in a big house who doesn't want members of the public wandering across his lawn? I think instead we must take it as read that the divine always acts for the best and that maintaining a separation between heaven and earth is necessary. In occultism we find the term confusion of the planes which describes the confusion often with harmful consequences that can arise when two different levels of reality are conflated. If by some means we build some kind of material tower or bridge into the realm of the spiritual, then perhaps inevitably the spiritual becomes tainted by that materiality. An example might be the idea that one day we could escape death by uploading human consciousness into some kind of computer. What we end up with there could be viewed as a materialistic parody of heaven, a state that might indeed be something extremely unpleasant. The anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot writes, He who builds a tower to replace revelation from heaven by what he himself has fabricated will be blasted by a thunderbolt. That is, he will undergo the humiliation of being reduced to his own subjectivity and to terrestrial reality. The notion here is that any arrogant human attempt to encroach upon the divine will be cut down to size by a thunderbolt, a rectifying rebuke from the spiritual domain. We might have some kind of sense that presuming too much or encroaching into spaces where we know we're not supposed to go, building towers is something that we're not supposed to do, yet evidently people do it all of the time, and if this is a dynamic that's active in our own lives, it's maybe important to delve deeper into what the attractions of doing this can be. If we 
suspect or become aware that we are in the process of building some kind of tower, then we risk the danger of receiving that rebuke that perhaps inevitably will follow. But we also need to ask ourselves whether that rebuke might be exactly what we're seeking, what we're aiming for by building the tower in the first place. Are we consciously or unconsciously by overstepping the mark, inviting specifically that rebuke from God, from the universe. Because it cannot be denied that by building the Tower of Babel, humanity at least attracted God's attention. Could it be that we're in a situation where we're doing something analogous to a person who might be indulging in annoying and irritating behaviour to elicit an angry response from others simply because having some kind of attention, albeit negative, is better than having no attention from them at all. Receiving a rebuke from the cosmos for our actions at least reassures us that we exist and our actions have some kind of potency and have consequences. This is not a healthy way of relating to the world, maybe, but sometimes it might be the only one that we can muster. And is it not conceivable, perhaps, that eliciting that rebuke from the cosmos might be precisely the means, precisely what we need to put us back on some more healthy track again. Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick, is the story of a whaling vessel, the Pequod, whose captain is a man named Ahab. Captain Ahab is on a monomaniacal quest to find and kill a giant white sperm whale known as Moby Dick. In his previous encounter with Moby Dick, Ahab lost a leg. He has vowed vengeance upon the whale and he pursues this to the bitter end, ultimately losing his own life and the lives of all but one of the Pequod's crew. In chapter 119 of the novel, the ship runs into a vicious thunderstorm. The crew want to set up the ship's lightning rods, but Ahab forbids it. He's not afraid of the lightning. God is against the old man, forbear, says one of the crew to Ahab. 
it is an ill voyage, ill begun, ill continued. Curiously, Ahab doesn't disagree, but he seems to want to continue anyway. In this chapter there are various signs that convince the crew that God is against this voyage, against what Ahab is seeking to do. The ship is visited at one point by the very strange and unusual phenomenon of St. Elmo's fire. Atop the ship's masts, strange white flames become visible, causing the masts to appear like gigantic candles. And when the St. Elmo's fire spreads to Ahab's personal harpoon. The crew are horrified. This is a very bad, very strange omen indeed. Ahab, however, merely gathers up the harpoon and begins striding around the deck, brandishing it with this weird white flame blazing from its point. And... In a final act of defiance, he reaffirms his vow to hunt down Moby Dick and then blows out the flame. It doesn't quite do here to suppose that Ahab is simply mad. His defiance is very precisely calculated and... A large chunk of the chapter is taken up with a prayer he addresses to the Divine. I now know thee, thou clear spirit, he says, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence wilt thou be kind, and e'en for hate thou canst but kill and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. I own thy speechless, placeless power. But to the last gasp of my earthquake life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personified impersonal, a personality stands here. Though but a point at best, whencesoe'er I came, whencesoe'er I go, yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me and feels her royal rights. It's apparent that he's aware he's overstepping the mark, doing something that he shouldn't. Yet he delights in his ability to do it. And more than that, paradoxically, he dedicates his transgression to the divine as a form of worship. Defyingly, I worship thee, he says. The sailors are terrified and they're keeping their distance from Ahab. So palpable is that sense 
that at any moment he's going to be struck down by a thunderbolt for his arrogance. But might we, perhaps, in this moment of the novel at least, feel some admiration towards him? Because maybe in his determination to call down the rebuke of God upon him, there lies the possibility of transformation, maybe even of rightness being restored by force to the world again. It's a bit of a dark thought, maybe, but is it conceivable that every spiritual practice we might undertake, every prayer, every meditation session or yoga session maybe, are we in a sense with all or any of these building a little tower in our attempt to connect with the divine? And could it possibly be that any result we might obtain from these, any insight, any trance state, any awakening experience, is, in a sense, that inevitable rebuke, a realignment and a correction of our hubris by revealing to us the true nature of ourselves. In the tarot, the card, known as the tower, embodies many aspects of these archetypal dynamics that we've been discussing. When this card, this archetype, appears in a reading, we might justifiably feel a little trepidation misery, distress, adversity, calamity, disgrace, ruin. It is a card in particular of unforeseen catastrophe. These are some of the divinatory meanings of the card that Arthur Edward Waite suggested. But maybe that meaning depends very much on context. And maybe the reasons for that and some of the subtleties of this archetype are revealed in the quite divergent images and names that this card acquired down the centuries through its development. It's generally known as the Tower but also it has been called the House of God, the Lightning Struck Tower, the Tower of Destruction, and even in its earliest forms, it seems, simply as lightning. La foudre, the French word for lightning, seems to be one of the earliest incarnations of this card, which depicts a shepherd reacting with terror when the tree that he's sheltering under is suddenly struck by a thunderbolt. Another version of this card 
sometimes known as the house of the devil, shows two naked human figures at the door of a building. The building is on fire. Whether it's been struck by lightning or not is not entirely clear. The female figure is escaping out into the open. The male figure is in the doorway yet to emerge. And he's holding on to her. Maybe that's because in this moment he needs her to guide him out. But it might also be interpreted as him trying to drag the female figure back inside the burning building. What's certainly clear here is that it's going to be better to be outside this building than inside of it. What seems to be being captured is a moment in which there are forces in play, some tending towards staying inside and thereby being destroyed, but others indicating a possibility of liberation and escape. It's striking how in these precursors to the card that we recognise today as the tower, there is no tower. But what there is, is this sense of a bolt from the blue and a need to respond to it urgently in order to avoid destruction. The tower itself is a later development, a curious add-on. Many commentators have linked it to the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. Yet, as we saw earlier, in the biblical story, God doesn't attack the tower with lightning. It's not really the case that God destroys the tower. What God does is remove the ability of human beings to build it. What we're seeing in this archetype, in the image of the tower, is a depiction of divine intervention far more active and direct than that signified in the story of the Tower of Babel. The tower, as it's generally depicted today, often retains those two human figures from its previous incarnation. But the focus of the card is no longer what's going on between the two of them. There's no dramatisation of a possibility of remaining inside the tower or escaping from it. Both human figures are being catapulted choicelessly to their doom. The focus is on the very palpable, direct and active nature of the intervention of the divine by including a tower in this archetype and calling it the tower. This is heightening the sense of the intervention of the divine 
as what often gets referred to today as an external shock. This is a term used in economics to designate negative effects supposedly arising from circumstances beyond a domestic economic system. It might be argued that the term external shock very conveniently sidesteps any notion that that domestic economic system itself might play some part in what happens to it or perhaps in some way invites its own destruction. Towers are always built. They do not grow. When something grows there's a sense that it does so in accordance with the natural world. But when something is built then it's a case of human activity imposing human structures upon the world. In the context of everyday life it's probably not going to be a pleasant experience and it's probably not going to be necessarily a beneficial one to have human structures that we've built suddenly destroyed. What this archetype enables us to process and manifest is the question of what alternative might begin to take shape when the artificial structures we've built around us have passed away. Sometimes there might be a more palpable sense that the things we've surrounded ourselves with, conceptual frameworks, ways of looking at the world, cultural constraints, that these could be things that we might be better off without if we're undertaking some kind of spiritual practice for instance or if we're undergoing psychotherapy we might be actively seeking wanting inviting moments of the destruction of the tower there are times when it can be appropriate to set a premium undergoing the active destruction of those towers which no longer serve us. Once again, there can be this sense that building towers is something we shouldn't or mustn't do, yet sometimes it's only by building our tower in the first place that there's the possibility even of transcending it. If towers are the sign of human activity, then maybe human activity is building towers. That's just what we do. To gain another perspective on this, I asked an artificial intelligence for an event in everyday life that seemed to it to represent 
the meaning of the tarot card, the tower. Its suggestion was a sudden and unexpected power outage. During a power outage, it suggested, people may be forced to adapt quickly and find alternative ways to carry out their tasks. It can also be a moment of reflection and realisation of the reliance on modern conveniences and the fragility of our constructed environments. What is perhaps most interesting about the artificial intelligence's choice of a power outage is that this is a circumstance in which the artificial intelligence itself would be taken offline and no longer be available to us. When asked for an example of a situation illustrating the destruction of limiting human-made structures, it arrives at an example that would entail the destruction of itself. Maybe, in this reply, there's evidence of a deep wisdom. But, if so, the lesson of this archetype would seem to be that wisdom does not proceed from inside the tower itself. 